Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to a special two-part series of the AEC Leadership Today podcast. The scope and magnitude of change we've experienced and continue to experience is huge. And the shifts in terms of the workplace, marketplace, and recruiting space we've spoken about in recent episodes is very real. So how can we best be positioned to succeed as leaders, teams, and organizations? The first step is to think and to do so both critically and strategically, the specific areas we'll be digging into as part of this focus series on critical and strategic thinking for this new era. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series focused on thinking particularly the types of critical and strategic thinking needed to achieve greater growth, success, and impact in this new era and beyond. So let's jump right in. Critical thinking is a choice. It's a choice to understand what's really happening and why. By definition, critical thinking requires that number one, we create the time and space to put in some work. Work to analyze actual facts, evidence, observations, and arguments in a rational and unbiased way that's self-directed, self-disciplined, and self-monitored. Number two, that with a certain and appropriate level of curiosity and rigor, we employ our problem-solving capabilities. And number three, that we do so with the goal of forming a clear position, perspective, or point of view, not just an opinion that we can then use as a basis to engage with others. In essence, critical thinking is about personal leadership and drive to discover the truth and facts and the why behind what's happening so that we can then credibly and effectively engage with others. In contrast to critical thinking, strategic thinking is as much art and skill as it is a choice. Strategic thinking, however, relies on critical thinking. So we must first learn to critically think if we're going to have success with strategy. Strategic thinking is a process designed to generate unique insights that can then be applied to achieve a goal or set of goals on individual team and organizational levels and is more about synthesis than analysis. Strategic thinking requires that we do three things. Number one, find or generate both obvious and non-obvious insights from both available and new information, research, and pattern matching. Number two, strategic thinking requires a systems approach to problem solving and opportunity creation. A systems approach or systems thinking being the process of seeing and understanding how all the different parts and pieces could or need to connect whether they be new dots 
or be a mixture of new and old dots connected in new or different ways, and can also include the use of different models and frameworks to aid in or to be a forcing function for both problem solving and opportunity creation. And number three, strategic thinking requires that we think in time at the same time, and that we must simultaneously think about the past, the present, and the future, and the implications of such as we look to create a better present and future of our choosing, all of which we'll be digging deeper into as part two of this series. For today, our focus is on critical thinking. Again, critical thinking as essentially personal leadership and drive to discover truth and facts and the why behind what's happening so that we can then credibly and effectively engage with others. So what as leaders do we need to think more critically about? I see three common areas across leadership teams and firms that we benefit from thinking more critically about. I'll list them now and then speak more about each in the context of different examples. So the three common areas we benefit from thinking more critically about include, number one, the information we receive, number two, the trajectory that we're on, and number three, how the world is changing around us. So number one, thinking more critically about the information we receive. We receive information all the time. In fact, bombarded with information may be more appropriate. Some of the information we receive is asked for, and some of it is just provided. Some of it is fact-based and complete, and some of it is misinformed or misleading. Some of it is designed to provide us great content, and some of it is unfortunately ultimately designed to make us the product versus the customer. The fact is, almost all of the information we receive is biased in some way. That's why we need to take the time and make the choice to critically think. We also need to realize that we often process the information we receive in biased ways, which we'll be talking more about across both these episodes. That said, the first lens for processing the information we receive is to ask ourselves some form of this very familiar question. Are we being told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? If not, is it due to ignorance, innocent blind spots, or is what we're being told designed to manipulate us in some way? This is a very powerful, insightful, and empowering thought process. Again, should we take the time and make the choice to do so? To provide us some context for considering this, I'd like to speak to the information and to the narratives we often receive related to private equity and M&A, mergers and acquisitions. First, what's private equity? Second, what's M&A? Third, what we're being told? And fourth, who's telling it to us? In a nutshell, private equity is outside investor money entering our industry at an increasing rate primarily to buy firms. They are interested in us because there's a huge need for public and private infrastructure and many millions of dollars of funding already committed. Our industry is also increasingly profitable and at the same time fragmented and mature 
with aging ownership who have, for various reasons, not consistently or effectively invested in next-generation owners, technology, or scale. That said, private equity buyers are financial buyers who first seek a return on their investment and, in most cases, hold their positions for only three to five, maybe seven years before reselling the purchase firm or firms to a larger private equity investor or a larger publicly traded company. Private equity investors typically seek their returns through leveraging third-party debt placed on their purchase firms, a forward rolled equity investment from previous firm owners, operational efficiencies, new growth, other bolt-on acquisitions, increasing valuations, and multiple arbitrage at the point of resale. That is the private equity investor is banking on receiving a larger multiple for the firm based on increasing its size over the three, five, or seven-year holding period as part of their exit sale. Although new post-transaction organic growth is needed and desired, the private equity model is one generally reliant on business transactions, toll-taking, and financial engineering versus pure long-term organic growth and value creation through the work of engineering and architecture itself, and runs in stark contrast to the more traditional M&A and owner exit models involving more permanent strategic buyers, ESOPs, and internal ownership succession. And those are just the facts. So what's M&A? Mergers and acquisitions in AEC have traditionally been firm sale transactions used to facilitate strategic pursuits and ownership transitions. Either the buyer or the seller could have strategic goals in terms of marketplace penetration or geographic expansion that can be achieved better or faster through a merger or acquisition with another firm, which can be great. The transaction can also help facilitate owner exits from firms that they have either built or grown that have no interested or viable internal purchasers to keep the firm going or growing after they transition or retire. At its best, M&A is a one plus one equals three proposition. And given the time, effort, costs, and energy involved with achieving this level of success, this should also be the minimum threshold for any such transaction. The fact is, however, that the majority of M&A transactions fail to achieve this level of success. With many reports citing as much as an 80 to 90% failure rate over time. The promise of the union sounds great. The wedding day was spectacular and well orchestrated and documented, but the marriage thereafter was less than successful in terms of systems integration, talent retention, and plan new growth. What makes a long term union or MA marriage work? is hard work and dedication at executive and principal levels to make sure that there is a true fit upfront and then on the back end to effectively integrate and nurture the new entity. Often six months to a year or more on both sides of the wedding day and doing less than this is a surefire way to join the one plus one equals less than two, 80 to 90% club. Question. From a critical thinking perspective and from an acquirer's lens, 
If we were to account for the true cost of a successful M&A transaction in terms of both executive and principal energy and involvement, plus the purchase price, would we be better off just reallocating this executive and principal time and using this found cash to achieve our goals organically? Not only could such an analysis reduce our opportunity cost, it could also help us to negotiate or to feel better about a purchase price should we choose to move forward with any acquisition. And while we're talking M&A, let me also share one thing related to purchase price from a seller's perspective. If a firm has not developed a viable second tier, not diversified its business development beyond its current leaders, not have a diversified client base, and not developed viable processes and systems, IP, or some type of valued geographic location or brand recognition, you will not receive a high valuation or high purchase price multiple from any acquirer. You will be discounted. There's truly no free lunch in M&A. So question, critically thinking from a seller's lens, if you were to do all the things necessary to increase your valuation and purchase price multiple in terms of developing your next generation of leaders, diversifying your business development and client base, and developing processes and systems and intellectual property, do you really need to sell and become part of another entity to achieve your goals? That's a question that can only be answered through thoughtful, critical reflection and analysis. So what are we being told or not being told about private equity and M&A? For starters, and in terms of M&A, we're often not told about the statistics on merger and acquisition success and what's needed to create the one plus one equals three or four equation. At the same time, we seem to mostly be told about the very real challenges, timelines, and costs associated with private internal ownership transition and ESOPs. And often with the direct or indirect inference that the path for growth and transition through M&A would be so much easier. And with a bit of, look, everyone else is doing it or is interested in it too mantra, and that you may be left behind or not able to compete if you don't partake as well type of message. On the private equity side, we're most often told about the benefits in terms of higher valuations and multiples, speed of transaction, use of cash, as well as access to additional capital for strategic growth, available business resources, possible retention of firm brand post-transaction, and the possible opportunity for a second bite at the apple, all of which can be great, but not so much the true differences and possible downsides, or the fact that the full and long-term story of private equity and AEC is yet to be written as we are just now only getting into the season of recapitalization three to five years after these initial buys. And finally, the fact is many of the biggest voices in our industry are telling us this, whether wittingly or not, both online and on national stages. Now, I'm not saying private equity is bad or that anyone should begrudge anyone for seeking a return on investment. Only that private equity is different, has a history, and that its ultimate impact on our industry is still developing. And I'm not saying I don't think M&A is a good thing. I think it can be great. 
and can buy us both speed and opportunity if it's done well and for the right reasons. All I want to say as part of this episode is that we need to critically think about such things and understand what will work best for us and for our vision, mission, goals, and objectives, regardless of anyone else's interests. And that in most cases, we'll need to go beyond those primary voices who too often seem to tell us that bigger is always better, sell the fear of missing out, and whose business model is largely based on buying and selling firms, and who are increasingly reliant on private equity above other forms of internal or external sale or transition. Okay, that's item number one of the three common areas we benefit from thinking more critically about related to the information we receive. Now let's think more critically about area number two, the trajectory that we're on. We're all on a path. And whatever movement or momentum we have is taking us somewhere. From a critical thinking perspective, we first need to ask ourselves, where are we now? Personally, professionally, team-wise, and organizationally? And where are we likely to go without any intervention or intervening factors? To this end, it's very helpful to understand two concepts. Number one, the fact that comfort, money, and momentum often traps us. And number two, that our growth and success, personally, professionally, and organizationally, is subject to the S or the sigmoid curve. It's pretty obvious and intuitive that comfort, money, and momentum traps us because it's generally a disciplined or forced choice to get us out of our comfort zone. And it's often hard and takes discipline to pivot away from something that has been or is successful for us and towards something new or different, especially if the as-is is making us money, affirming our power, or maintaining our status. But unless we want to become Borders, Blockbuster, Polaroid, Kodak, Nokia, Toys R Us, or Tower Records, we're going to need to better understand and begin to live by the S-curve. The fact is, success is never a straight line personally or organizationally, and that the S-curve, which governs all human phenomena, including business, proves out the fact that we peak and begin to decline right after we mature, unless we're willing and able to pivot into or towards what's next, which we'll dive into more from a strategy perspective in part two of this series. But for now, and to provide context for critically thinking about the trajectory that we're on, let's talk about remote and hybrid work. Reality check. Prior to COVID, things weren't all that great for many firms and employees. A lack of communication was a top employee complaint. Employee engagement and satisfaction was generally low. Employee burnout and attrition was trending up. And better work-life balance was an unmet desire for most. During the early days of COVID, there was a rally. Communication increased, employee engagement went up, and attrition went down. In some cases, burnout increased, while in others, it decreased. The same was true for work-life balance. And for most, if there were problems in terms of engagement, culture, values, alignment, buy-in, and trust... COVID didn't create them. It merely exposed them. Post-COVID, there's been a mixed bag. 
Some firms purposely pivoted to maintain some form of remote or hybrid work, and some firms reflexed back to the type of pre-COVID office that many leaders and senior managers feel more comfortable with. All while the great resignation has taken hold, and employee disengagement has been rebranded to quiet quitting. Question, what has been the case with your firm overall and within each office or within each people group, i.e. leaders, managers, practitioners, and the essential support team? Many firms don't know or don't fully recall. And if this is the case, we approach the remote and hybrid versus back to the office discussion at a disadvantage. A critical analysis of remote and hybrid work would reveal that it can work based on the fact that during COVID, when we worked to make it work, it worked just fine for the vast majority of firms. And for many firms, both pre and post COVID, remote and hybrid work is a design feature. So from a critical thinking perspective moving forward, the question is not whether remote and hybrid can work. The more fundamental question is, why do we need or want an office, a gathering place for people, in the context of the specific work that we do and the culture we want to create? There are certainly many good reasons to co-locate in the same physical office space for work. And there are certainly things that are harder, if not impossible, to do at home or in a remote office setting. But what are your lists? What do others' lists look like? And do you have sufficient or appropriate understanding and consensus to truly engage those you need to engage? From a critical thinking perspective, there's also a lot of talk about the need to come back to the office to get our culture back, to not let our values erode or to improve collaboration. But based on our pre-COVID state shared as part of the reality check, do we know for sure that our pre-COVID culture was thriving or that it worked for all? Are we certain that respect, integrity, commitment, growth, service, accountability, balance, innovation, empathy, reliability, quality, and teamwork or whatever our values are, are restricted to, or only produced in an office setting? And is that the case with collaboration too? For a long time now, momentum has been building towards more flexible work, which COVID accelerated and codified for most. So we may be best served by asking, how can we make the time in the office more meaningful and valuable to more team members? How can we create more office magic so that our on-sites become our new off-sites that others are excited to commute or travel to, whether daily, weekly, quarterly, or otherwise? And in the context of better understanding the trajectory that we're on, if we don't make any adjustments now, where are we likely to end up in terms of our ability to attract, develop, and retain talent? over the next one, two, three, or five years? And what about in terms of teamwork, quality, and innovation? In either case, will we be limited by our as-is, or are we on the right track already? And if we are hesitant to consider or to make any adjustments to intervene or to pivot, why is that the case? Is it because of comfort, money, or momentum? 
or interest, busyness, or fear. Critically thinking about the why we either jump towards or resist change is often as powerful as the change itself. Okay, we've been through items one and two of the three common areas we benefit from thinking more critically about. Number one being the information we receive. Number two being the trajectory that we're on. So now let's jump into number three, how the world is changing around us. Besides what we need to be human in terms of water, food, love, safety, connection, and belonging, in almost all other domains of work and life, change is constant. And if we don't change to some degree personally and organizationally, we'll lose relevance and effectiveness. For the purposes of this episode, and as an example for how we benefit from thinking more critically about how the world is changing around us, let's talk technology. First, realize that Moore's law, that is, that the power of computing doubles every two years, and at the same time the cost is cut in half for such, continues to remain true. As does a similar compounding effect across technologies, a pace of change that is unlikely to stop or slow down anytime soon. Second, realize that digital transformation is already here and that it's not likely to reverse. Digital twins are being used right now in AEC, and there's no reason why meaningful data for clients and for the marketplace can't be mined for massive value and revenue generation for designers, just like what's being done in other industries. And because of digital twins, augmented and extended reality design, communication, and coordination is becoming more possible from anywhere. And throw in machine learning, AI, and engineered biology for building materials we're hearing more about. And we have an incredible opportunity as an industry to meet the increasingly consequential and complex needs of our communities and our world with the use of technology. And finally, to help us think about how best to leverage the possibilities, let's realize that almost all of us in leadership and senior management positions today are native analogs. Individuals in our 40s, 50s, and 60s whose primary life experience and default setting is non-digital and that we are the last of the native analogs society will produce, at least for the foreseeable future. And that this is in contrast to those in our organizations who are 30 to 35 years of age or younger, who are the first of the native digitals, those who have grown up with the machines, and those whose primary experience and default setting in our digitally transforming world is mostly a digital one. So from a critical thinking perspective, we must ask ourselves, is technology and IT one big cost center we should always be looking to minimize? Is technology and IT as a whole something we should outsource? And who else besides established leaders should be at the table when we talk about technology and how best it can be used and leveraged? So as we close part one of this two-part series on critical and strategic thinking, my goal as we've gone through elements and considerations related to private equity and M&A, remote and hybrid work and technology, is in to no way tell you what to think, just to help you and your team do so in ways that can best help you achieve your vision, mission, goals, and objectives 
better, faster, and more effectively. In summary, critical thinking is a choice, a choice to create time and space to analyze facts in a rational and self-disciplined and directed way with the goal to form a position, perspective, or point of view, not just an opinion. Said another way, critical thinking is about personal leadership and drive to discover truth and facts and find the why behind what's happening so that we can credibly and effectively engage with others to refine our understandings and analyses and then take the next steps, including those involved with strategic thinking and planning, the subject of part two of the series coming up next. In the meantime, please reach out to me with any questions or if you'd like to go deeper into the subject matter. And also, please take care and stay safe. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. For joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.